Part One, Chapter Five A of The Adventures of Jimmy Dale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Jimmy Dale by Frank L. Packard, reading by Lars Rolander. Part One: The Man in the Case. Chapter 5a The Affair of the Pushcart Man Larry the Bat shambled out of the side door of the tenement into the back alleyway, shambled along the black alleyway to the street, and smiled a little grimly as a shadow across the roadway suddenly shifted its position. The game was growing acute, critical, desperate even, and it was his move. Larry the Bat, disreputable denizen of the underworld, alias Jimmy Dale, millionaire's clubman, alias the Grey Seal, whom Carruthers of the Morning News Argus called the master criminal of the age, shuffled along in the direction of the Bowery. His hands plung deep in the pocket of his frayed and tattered trousers, where his fingers, in a curious, wistful way, fondled the keys of his own magnificent residence on Riverside Drive. It was his move, and it was an impasse, ironical, sardonic, and it was worse. It was full of peril. True, he had outwitted Klein of the Secret Service two nights before, when Klein had raided the counterfeiter's den, True, he had no reason to believe that Klein suspected him specifically, but the man Klein wanted had entered the tenement that night, and since then the house had been shadowed day and night. The result was both simple and disastrous to Jimmy Dale. Larry the Bat, a known inmate of the house, might come and go as he pleased, but to emerge from the sanctuary in the person of Jimmy Dale would be fatal. Klein had been outwitted, but Klein had not acknowledged final defeat. The tenement had been searched from top to bottom, unostentatiously. His own room on the first landing had been searched the previous afternoon when he was out, but they had failed to find the cunningly contrived opening in the floor under the oilcloth in the corner, an impromptu wardrobe that would proclaim Larry the Bat and Jimmy Dale to be one and the same person. That would inevitably lead further to the establishment of his identity as the Grey Seal. In time, of course, the surveillance would cease, but he couldn't wait. That was the monumental irony of it. The factor that, all unknown to Klein, was forcing the issue hard now. It was his move. Since, years ago now, as the Grey Seal, he had begun to work with her, that unknown, mysterious accomplice of his, and the police, stung to madness, both by the virulent and constant attacks of the press, and by the humiliating prod of their own failures, sought daily, high and low, with every resource at their command for the Grey Seal. He had never been in quite so strange and perilous a plight as he found himself at that moment. To preserve inviolate the identity of Larry the Bat was absolutely vital to his safety. It was the one secret that even she, 
who so strangely appeared to know all else about him he was sure had not discovered, and it was just that, in a way, that had brought the present impossible situation to pass. In the month previous, in a lull between those letters of hers, he had set himself doggedly and determinedly to the renewed task of what had become so dominantly now a part of his very existence, the solving of her identity. And for that month, as the best means to the end, means, however, that only resulted as futilely as the attempts that had gone before, he had lived mostly as Larry the Bat, returning to his home in his proper person, only when occasion and necessity demanded it. He had been going home that evening, two nights before, walking along Riverside Drive, when, from the window of the limousine, she had dropped the letter at his feet. That had plunged him into the affair of the counterfeit five, and he had not gone home. Eventually, to save himself, he had, in the sanctuary, performing the transformation in desperate haste, again been forced to assume the role of Larry the Bat. That was really the gist of it, and yesterday morning he had remembered, to his dismay, that he had had little or no money left the night before. He had intended, of course, to replenish his supply when he got home. Only he hadn't gone home, and now he needed money, needed it badly, desperately, with thousands in the bank, with abundance even in his safe, in his own den at home, a supply kept there always for an emergency, he was facing actual want. He rattled two dimes, a nickel, and a few odd pennies thoughtfully against the keys in his pocket. To a certain extent, old Jason, his butler, could be trusted. Jason even knew that mysterious letters of tremendous secretive importance came to the house, and the old man always meant well but he dared not trust even Jason with the secret of his dual personality. What was he to do? He needed money imperatively, at once. Thanks to Klein, for the time being, at least, he could not rid himself of the personality of Larry the Bat by the simple expedient or slipping into the clothes of Jimmy Dale. He must live, act, and remain Larry the Bat until the Secret Service officer gave up the hunt. How bridged the gulf between Jimmy Dale and Larry the Bat in old Jason's eyes? Nor was that all. There was still another matter, and one that, in order to counteract it, demanded at once a serious inroad to the extent of a telephone call upon his slender capital. A too prolonged and unaccounted for absence from home and old Jason, in his anxious, blundering solicitude, would have the fat in the fire at the end, and the city, and the social firmament thereof, would be humming with the startling news of the disappearance of a well-known millionaire. The complications that would then ensue, with himself powerless to lift a finger, Jimmy Dale did not care to think about. Such a contretemps must at all hazards be prevented. Jimmy Dale reached the corner of the street, where it intersected the Bowery and paused languidly by the curb. No one appeared to be following. He had not expected that there would be, but it was well to be sure. He walked then a few steps along the Bowery, and slipped suddenly into a doorway, from where he could command a view of the street corner that he had just left. 
at the end of ten minutes, satisfied that no one had any concern in his immediate movements, he shambled on again down the bowery. There was a saloon two blocks away that boasted a private telephone booth. Jimmy Dale made that his destination. Larry the Bat was a very well-known character in that resort, and the bullet-headed dispenser of drinks behind the bar nodded anxiously to him over the heads of those clustered at the rail as he entered. Larry the Bat, as befitted one of the elite of the underworld, was graciously pleased to acknowledge the proletariat salutation with a curt nod. He walked down to the end of the room, entered the telephone booth, and was carelessly careful to close the door tightly behind him. He gave the number of his residence on Riverside Drive and waited for the connection. After some delay, Jason's voice answered him. "'Jason,' said Jimmy Dale in matter-of-fact tones, "'I shall be out of the city for another three or four days, possibly a week, and—' uh, He stopped abruptly as a sort of gasp came to him over the wire. "'Oh, thank God that's you, sir!' exclaimed the old butler wildly. "'I've been near mad, sir, all day!' "'Don't get excited, Jason,' said Jimmy Dale a little sharply. "'The mere matter of my absence for the last two days is nothing to cause you any concern. "'And while I am on the subject, Jason, let me say now that I shall be glad if you will bear the fact in mind in future.' "'Yes, sir,' stammered Jason. "'But, sir, it ain't that—good Lord, Master Jim, it ain't that, sir. It's—it's one of them letters.' Something like a galvanic shock seemed to jerk the disreputable, loose-jointed frame of Larry the Bat suddenly erect, and a strained whiteness crept over the dirty, unwashed face. "'Go on, Jason.' said Jimmy Dale, without a quiver in his voice. "'It came this morning, sir. That chauffeur with his automobile left it. I had just time to say you weren't at home, sir, and he was gone. And then, sir, there ain't been an hour gone by all through the day that a woman, sir, a lady, begging your pardon, Master Jim, hasn't rung up on the telephone, asking if you were back, and if I could get you, and where you were, and—' "'Half frantic, sirs, half sobbing sometimes, sir, "'and saying there was a life hanging on it, Master Jim.' Larry the Bat, staring into the mouthpiece of the instrument, subconsciously passed his hand across his forehead, and subconsciously noted that his fingers, as he drew them away, were damp. "'Where's the letter now, Jason?' inquired Jimmy Dale coolly. "'Here, on your desk, Master Jim.' "'Shall I bring it to you?' "'Bring it to him? How? When? Where? Bring it to him?' The ghastly irony of it, Jimmy Dale tried to think, prodding, spurring desperately that keen lightning brain of his that had never failed him yet. How bridged the gulf between Larry the Bat and Jimmy Dale in Jason's eyes? Not just for the replenishing of funds now, but with a life at stake. "'No!' "'I think not, Jason,' said Jimmy Dale calmly. "'Just leave it where it is. "'And if she telephones again, say that you have told me. "'That will be sufficient to satisfy any further inquiries. "'And, Jason?' "'Yes, sir.' "'If she telephones again, try and find out where the call comes from.' "'I haven't forgotten what you said once, Master Jim, sir,' said the old man eagerly. "'And I've been trying that, sir, all day. "'They've all come from different pay stations, sir.' 
A mirthless little smile tinged Jimmy Dale's lips. Of course, he might have known. It was always that way, always the same. He was as near to the solution of her identity at that moment as he had been years ago, when she, in some mysterious way, alone of all the world, had identified him as the Grey Seal. "'Very good, Jason,' he said quietly. "'Don't bother about it any more. It will be all right. You can expect me when you see me. Good night.' He hanged receiver on the hook, walked out of the booth, and mechanically reached the street. "'All right. It was far from all right. Very far from it. It was no trivial thing, that letter.' They never had been trivial things, those letters of hers, that involved so often a matter of life and death, as this one now, perhaps, as her actions would seem to indicate, involved life and death more urgently than any that had gone before. It was far from all right, at a moment when his own position, his own safety, was at best but a desperate chance, when his Every energy, brain, wit, and cunning were taxed to the utmost to save himself. And yet, somehow, some way, at any cost, he must get that letter, and at any cost he must act upon it. To fail her was to fail utterly in everything that failure in its most miserable, its widest sense implied. Failure in that which rose paramount to every other consideration in life. Fail her? Jimmy Dale's lips thinned into a hard-drawn line, and then parted slowly in a curiously whimsical smile. It would be a strange burglary that he had decided upon, in order that he might not fail her, stranger than any the Grey Seal had ever committed, and, in some respects, even more perilous. He started along the Bowery, walking briskly now toward the nearest supper station, at Astor Place, his mind for the moment electing to face the situation in a humour as whimsical as his smile, supposing that as Larry the Bat he were caught and arrested during the next hour in Jimmy Dale's residence on Riverside Drive. With his arrest as Larry the Bat, Jimmy Dale would automatically disappear, would follow then the suspicion that Jimmy Dale, the millionaire, had met with foul play and as time went on, and Jimmy Dale, being then in prison as Larry the Bat, did not reappear, the assurance of it, then the certainty that suspicion would focus on Larry the Bat as being connected with the millionaire's death, since Larry the Bat had been caught in Jimmy Dale's home, and he would be accused of his own murder. It was quite humorous, of course, quite grotesquely bizarre, but it was equally an exceedingly grim possibility. There were drawbacks to a dual personality. In a word, confided Jimmy Dale softly to himself, and a serious light crept into the dark, steady eyes, I'm in a bit of a nasty mess. At Astor Place he entered the subway, at 14th Street he changed to an express, and at 96th Street he got out. It was but a short walk west to Riverside Drive, and from there his house was only a few blocks farther on. Jimmy Dale did not slouch now, and for all his disreputable attire, incongruous as it was in that neighborhood, few people that he passed paid any attention to him. None gave him more than a casual glance. Jimmy Dale swung along upright, with no attempt to make himself inconspicuous, 
hurrying a little as one intent upon a definite errand. As he neared his house, he slowed his pace a little until a couple who were passing in front of it had gone on. Then he went up the steps, but noiselessly as a shadow now, to the front door, opened it softly, closed it softly behind him, and crouched for a moment in the vestibule. Through the monogrammed lace of the plate glass of the inner doors he could see a little indistinctly into the reception hall beyond. The hall was empty. Jason, for that matter, would be the only one likely to be about. The other servants would have no business there in any case, and whether in their quarters above or below, they had their own stairs at the rear. Jimmie Dale inserted the key in the spring lock and opened the door a cautious fraction of an inch to listen. There was no sound. Yes, a subdued murmured. The servants were downstairs in the basement. He slipped inside, slipped in a flash across the hall, and, treading like a cat, went up the stairs. He scarcely seemed to breathe until, with a little sigh of relief, he stood inside his den on the first floor, with the door shut behind him. "'I must speak to Jason about being a little more watchful,' muttered Jimmie Dale facetiously. "'Here's all my property at the mercy of Larry the Bat.' An instant he stood by the door, looking about him. In the bright moonlight streaming in through the side windows, the room's appointments stood out in soft shadows. The huge Davenport, the great, luxurious easy chairs, an easel with a half-finished canvas as he had left it, the big, flat-topped rosewood desk, the open fireplace, and then, his steps silent on the thick velvet rug underfoot, he walked quickly to the desk. Yes, there it was, the letter. He placed it hurriedly in his pocket. The moonlight was not strong enough to read by, and he dared not turn on the lights. And now, money, funds. In the alcove behind the portier, Jimmy Dale dropped on his knees before the squat barrel-shaped safe and opened it. He reached inside, took out a package of banknotes, placed the bills in his pockets, and hesitated a moment. What else would he require? What act did that letter call upon the Grey Seal to perform in the next few hours? Jimmy Dale stared thoughtfully into the interior of the safe. Whatever it was, it must be performed in the role of Larry the Bat, for though he could get into his dressing-room now and become Jimmy Dale again, there were still those watchers outside the sanctuary. They must not become suspicious. And if Larry the Bat disappeared mysteriously, Larry the Bat would be the man that Klein and the Secret Service on the United States would never cease hunting for, and that would mean that he could never reassume a character that was as necessary for his protection as breath was to life, so long as the Grey Seal worked. True, he could change now to Jimmy Dale, but he would have to change back again and return to the sanctuary before morning as Larry the Bat, and remain there until Klein, beaten, called off his human bloodhounds. No, a change was not to be thought of. What, then, would he require? That compact little kit of burglar tools, rolled in its leather jacket, that unrolled, slipped about his body like a close-fitting underwest? As well to take it anyway. He removed his coat and vest, 
took out the leather bundle from the safe, untied the thongs that bound it together, unrolled it, passed it around his body, life-belt fashion, secured the thongs over his shoulders, and put on his coat and vest again. A revolver? A flashlight? He had both at the sanctuary, under the flooring, but there were duplicates here. He slipped them into his pockets. Anything else to forestall and provide for any possible contingency? He hesitated again for a moment, thinking, then slowly closed the inner door of the safe, locked it, swung the outer door shut, and in the act of twirling the knobs, sprang suddenly to his feet. Sharp! Shrill in the stillness of the room, the telephone bell on the desk rang out clamorously. Jimmy Dale's face set hard as he leaped out from behind the curtain. Had Jason heard it? It rang again before he could reach the desk, was ringing as he snatched the receiver from the hook. Yes, yes, he called in a low, guarded, hasty way into the mouthpiece. Hello, what is it? And then one hand, resting on the desk, closed around the edge and tightened until the skin over the knuckles grew ivory white. It was she, she, it was her voice. He had only heard it once in all his life, that night two nights before, in a silvery laugh from the limousine as it had sped away from him down the road. But he knew. It thrilled him now with a mad rhapsody, robbing him for the moment of every thought, save that she was living, real, existent, that it was her voice. "'It is you, you,' he said hoarsely. "'Oh, Jimmy, you at last!' It came in a little gasping cry of relief. The letter! Yes, I've got it. It's all right, it's all right. The words would not seem to come fast enough in his desperate haste. But it is you now. Listen, listen, he pleaded. Tell me, who are you? My God, how I've tried to find you, and... That rippling silvery laugh again. But now, too, it seemed to his eager ear with just the faintest note. Of wistfulness in it. Some day, Jimmy, that letter now it. Jimmy Dale straightened up suddenly. Jason's steps running sounded outside the room along the corridor. There was not an instant to lose. Hang up. Goodbye. Danger. Don't ring again. He whispered hurriedly, and with a miserable smile, replacing the receiver bitterly on the hook, he jumped for the curtain. He reaches none too soon. The door opened, an electric light switch clicked, and the room was flooded with light. Jason, still running, headed for the desk. It'll be her again. Jimmy Dale heard the old man mutter as from the edge of the portier he watched the other's actions. Jason picked up the telephone. Hello, hello, he called then began to click impatiently with the receiver hook. Hello? Who? Central? I don't want any number. Somebody was calling here. What? Nobody on the wire? He set the telephone back on the desk with a bewildered air. Oh, that's queer, he exclaimed. I could have sworn I heard it ring twice, and... He stopped abruptly, and, leaning across the desk, hung there, wide-eyed, staring while a sickly pallor began to steal into his face. 
"The letter!" he mumbled wildly. "The letter! Master Jim's letter! The letter is gone!" Trembling, excited, the old man began to search the desk, then down on his knees on the floor under it, and then, growing more frantic with every instant, rose and began to hunt around the room in an agitated, aimless fashion. Jason's distress was very real. He was almost beside himself now, with fear and anxiety. A whimsical, affectionate smile played over Jimmie Dale's lips at the old man's antics, and changed suddenly into one of consternation. Jason was making directly now for the curtain behind which he stood. Perhaps, though, he would pass it by, and Jason's hand reached out and grasped the portiere. "'Jason!' said Jimmie Dale sharply. The old man staggered back as though he had been struck, tried to speak, choked, and gazed at the curtain with distended eyes. "'Is, is that you, sir, Master Jim, behind the curtain there?' he finally blurted out. "'I, sir, uh, you gave me a start, and the letter, Master Jim.' "'Don't lose your head, Jason,' said Jimmie Dale coolly. "'I've got the letter.' Now do as I bid you. Yes, Master Jim, faltered the old man. Pull down the window shades and draw the portiere together, directed Jimmy Dale. Jason, still overwrought and excited, obeyed a little awkwardly. Now the lights, Jason, instructed Jimmy Dale. Turn them off. And go and sit down in that chair at the desk. Again Jason obeyed stumbling in the darkness as he returned from the electric light switch at the farther end of the room he sat down in the chair larry the bat stepped out from behind the curtain i came for that letter jason he explained quietly i'm going out again now i may be back tomorrow i may not be back for a week you will say nothing not a word of my having been here tonight do you understand jason "'Yes, sir,' said Jason, then hesitantly. "'Would you mind saying, sir, when you came in?' "'It is of no consequence, Jason, is it?' "'No, sir,' said Jason. Jimmy Dale smiled in the darkness. "'Jason?' "'Yes, sir.' "'I wish you to remain where you are, without leaving that chair for the next ten minutes.' He moved across the room to the door. "'Good night, Jason,' he said. "'Good n night, Master Jim. Good night, sir. Oh, Lord!' Jimmy Dale did not require that ten minutes. It was a very wide margin of safety to obviate the possibility of Jason from a window detecting the exit of a disreputable character from the house. In three minutes he was turning the corner of the first cross street and walking rapidly away from Riverside Drive. End of Part 1, Chapter 5a of The Adventures of Jimmy Dale by Frank L. Packard Read by Lars Rolander